Well, this uh, section in 1 Samuel, you guys have been studying it for a little bit here. It's a fascinating series of four stories. So each chapter, 25, 26, 27, 28, is a different story. And as I was thinking about these uh, chapters in preparation for this, I noticed a few things and connections between them that I hadn't seen as clearly before. So we'll, we'll focus uh, on that in particular. So first, just reminding of us of the context, Israel asked God for a king. And they sinfully asked him for it. Uh, But God granted the request, partly because it was his plan to give them a king all along. And so God used their, even their sinful request to fulfill his larger purposes, uh, which is a theme throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel, that God's in charge no matter what happens. And so as the book of 1st Samuel progresses, we wonder who will be the true king. So Saul is the king at first, and he is rejected early on by God as early as chapters 13 to 15. He's rejected as king. And then in chapter 16 to 20, we see the decline of Saul and David starting to rise. So he's secretly anointed as king. And then uh, his popularity rises. And as his popularity rises, Saul's jealousy rises. Okay, so in chapter 16 to 20, we see, yeah, decline of Saul, rise of David. And then from chapter 18 until now, Saul has essentially been hunting David, which is just crazy. And so David's been on the run. He keeps escaping. And just prior to our text, David spares Saul's life in a cave, and he did it out of conviction. He didn't want to take the life of the Lord's anointed, the king. He wanted to trust God. And that moment becomes really important for what we see in these chapters. So these stories now will continue this saga of David and Saul. And so we're not surprised to see Saul's continued downward spiral. Uh, But what is surprising in these chapters is how David is not necessarily cast as a pure hero, which really is consistent with first and second Samuel. He is lifted up as an example in so many ways, but there's story after story where he's really not the true hero. So let's look at chapter 25 first. Uh, This is David and Abigail. And the question we want to ask in this story is who is the hero? So uh, what I want to do is just walk through the story in terms of a plot line. So if you're familiar with narratives, every narrative has a plot line. The story of the Bible is a plot line, and plot lines follow a similar progression. And so there's usually a setting, which then leads to a a conflict or some kind of tension that begins. And then there's a rising action or a rising tension that builds toward a climax, which is the turning point of a story. And then that leads to a resolution and a new setting or um, what some call stasis. It's usually something, a new setting that's even better than the original one before. So as you read First and Second Samuel, you've probably noticed that there are the, a lot of these narratives and many of them follow this plot line. And so one of the benefits of looking through a plot line or looking at a story in terms of a plot line is you can find the emphasis of the story when you identify the climax of the story. So in this case, we have the setting in verses 1 to 3. So David's in the wilderness. Saul's hunting him, and David keeps sparing Saul's life. And then there's two characters we're introduced to, Abigail and Nabal. And they're a contrast. So Nabal is rich. He's harsh. He's badly behaved. His name literally means fool. So it reminds me of that first line in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, introduces a rude boy named Eustace. And the first line of that book is one of my favorites. It says, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And so I think of Nabal that way. His name was Nabal, and he almost deserved it. 
uh, because his name, well, he did deserve it. His name is cool. And in contrast to him, you have Abigail, who's discerning and beautiful. And her discernment really becomes a theme of the story. So after this setting, we see the conflict, and that's really Nabal's folly. And so David makes a request. He's protected Nabal's flock, so he wants Nabal to provide for his men. Big request, but it's reasonable. And in verses 6 to 8, David is very deferential to Nabal. He sends a greeting in his name, in in the name of David. He says uh, peace three times to Nabal. And in Hebrew, when anything is repeated three times, it's usually uh, very significant. And he makes the request gently. So he doesn't say, give me food or else. But he says, let my young men find favor in your eyes. He even refers to himself as Nabal's son. So very deferential. And Nabal, in response to this, completely rejects him. He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days. You know, he's basically like, like, who's this guy? I mean, there's a lot of people creeping around these days. How can I trust him? Now, it's interesting. Nabal's probably lying here. You get the sense, as you've been reading through First Samuel so far, haven't you gotten the sense that basically everyone knows who David is? He's the celebrity of the nation. Women are singing songs about him. All Israel loved him, the scripture says. Abigail, his wife, Nabal's wife, knows about David. She knows about God's promises to him to make him king because later in this chapter, in verses 28 to 31, she affirms these promises to David. So Nabal is probably lying here. He's very Nabal-focused. Verse 11, you can read it with me. He says, my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers. So he's selfish. He's not going to share anything with David. And so David, rather than moving on, he plans to make war. Now, here's the question. Why is this a problem in light of the previous chapters? If I was with you, I would be asking you and get some interaction. So I'll just answer the question. This is a big problem because David has been fleeing Saul in the wilderness for chapters here. And he's been showing that he's righteous by not killing Saul. In fact, in the previous chapter, you all saw that he showed that he would trust God for justice and rescue, and he wouldn't take it into his own hands. He keeps trusting the Lord, and therefore he refuses to kill Saul. He refuses to take salvation or deliverance into his own hands. And he needs that to be true because this is how he's a righteous king. This is how he stays different than Saul. But now... In this moment with Nabal, he is tempted to be just like Saul. Remember, Saul killed all those, had all those priests killed at Nob. David is reacting the same way here. He's tempted to forget God, retaliate on his own, and just completely overdo it as well. So Abigail hears of the danger that Nabal and all the men in this uh, area are in. And so she makes food and she sends it ahead to David. And so this comes to the climax of the story in verses 23 to 35. Abigail comes, she pleads with David to forgive. And she gives two concerns she has about David. One is she's concerned for him that he would shed innocent blood, the language of the text, and two, that he would save with his own hand rather than trusting God. It's repeated together, those two things, shedding innocent blood, and saving with his own hand, uh, repeated together three times in this section in verses uh, 26, 31, and 32. 26, 31, 32. Abigail repeats it twice together, and then David even repeats it as well. And this is the climax of the story. 
which is the most important part. So this then shows us what the story is really about. This is about David needing to learn the lesson again to not save with his own hand, but to trust God. So it's a story about faith, the faith of David. And this is really a, a repeated theme in the Bible. Salvation is the Lord's. A theologian named John Frame has a great introductory systematic theology book with that title, Salvation is the Lord's. And that's really what David needed to learn. That's what Abigail is instructing him to learn. And so why is this important? Well, Abigail is reminding David of God's promise to make him king. She's saying, God has promised to make you king. God will deliver you. So trust him. Do not take salvation into your own hands. So if Abigail did not step in and God didn't restrain David then, then he would have killed a number of innocent men. He would have been just like Saul. So David gets the lesson. He honors her. He thanks her for, for, for preventing him from blood guilt and saving with his own hand. And Abigail's discernment then is the key to the story. You remember how she was introduced. Nabal's introduced as a fool and badly behaved and harsh, and he showed himself to be that through the story. Abigail's introduced as discerning. And so she says that David would be killing without a cause, that God will work his salvation so David can trust him. And so David approves of her perspective. He honors her wisdom. And this leads then to the resolution where God actually then, uh, after this turning point climax, God then kills Nabal in judgment. And that reinforces the lesson then for David that you can trust God. You don't need to take things into your own hands. You don't need to retaliate in anger. Trust the Lord. He will make good on his promises. Uh, vengeance is the Lord's. And so Abigail is proven right that God would save. And so David uh, praises God for avenging him and then takes Abigail as his wife. So there's the story. Who's the hero? Well, let's ask this question. Who's the human hero? David or Abigail? Obviously, Abigail. Her words are the climax of the story. They're the turning point. Without her words, this would have been a disaster. So Abigail's the human hero. One more question, though. Who's the greater hero of the story? And the answer is God. Look with me at verses 32 to 34. I'll, I'll read them here. David said to Abigail... Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And then he said, verse 34, for as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come to meet me. In other words, you see what David's doing. David's recognizing that God is the one who is actually in charge here. God was protecting David and God was using Abigail to do that. And so God's also the one who struck Nabal dead. David said that God, in verse 39, he says that God kept him back from killing Nabal. So here's what we see then in this story. We see the failure of David. We see the wisdom of Abigail. And then we also see how this story taps into this meta theme in First and Second Samuel, which is God is sovereign over all of the events and he will make sure he takes care of David. So this is the doctrine of providence, that God's ultimately in charge of history. I wonder if you've noted that, by the way, as you've read 1 Samuel, throughout First and Second Samuel, there's a lot of just almost side comments made 
about how certain things happened and it was because God caused it to happen or God changed someone's heart or God put it into the mind of someone. So if, if you, those have bothered you, I just encourage you to not let it bother you. There's mystery here about how God is sovereign and humans are responsible, but clearly the biblical authors embrace this worldview. They have a big view of God. He's in charge of history. And so David had this theology as well. He had a big God. And so he knew that Abigail came to him and he said, you know, God's actually in charge. God did this. So God's the hero. So that's really the point of the story. And what a lesson for us then to know that we can trust the Lord just as David did. We don't need to angrily retaliate or take things in our own hands. We can patiently, calmly, humbly trust the Lord. He is in charge. And we also know that he uses people. And so just a couple quick reflections on Abigail. As you read this, you were probably impressed by her, as you should be. She's really the human hero of this story. So she gently challenges authority. She goes right to David with courage to tell him hard words that he needs to hear. So she is speaking to someone in power, and she's doing it gently and persuasively. She's also decisive, which is actually a contrast to Nabal and David. They're both feeling, losing their tempers, and Abigail's bold. She's noble, she's humble, she's trusting. And so she steps in to rescue these men from the mess they've gotten into. And I think it's really interesting too that she worked around her sinful husband. And Abigail seemed like she honored the Lord in this. She's presented positively all the way through. So here's an implication that I think is from this story, just as a side note. Wives do not need to go along with the sin of their husbands. Maybe a husband is abusive, or he's being led to false theology, or he's gossiping or causing division. A wife should stand against the sin of her husband, and she can have a disposition and inclination to follow his leadership while resisting his sin. And so wives in even abusive situations can go behind their husband's backs to seek help if the husband is deep in sin and foolishness, to go along with it while the disaster comes is to join in the foolishness. So I think this is important to note that Abigail is a woman of great faith and she is against the sin of her husband uh, for the good of her husband. And so let's remember the main point then. God, through Abigail, prevented David from not trusting God and from shedding innocent blood. So David needed to learn to trust the Lord. Now, keep that in mind as we look more briefly then at chapter 26. So here's David and Abishai. Quick summary of the story. Saul uh, sought out David again to kill him. Saul keeps hunting him. David finds Saul sleeping in an encampment. So Saul's there with all the men around him and Saul's sleeping. And another one of those side notes, by the way, that in this story, it says that God made them have a deep sleep. So again, God just completely sovereign over all these things. The climax of the story comes when David and Abishai decide to sneak up on Saul. Abishai wants to kill Saul. I mean, reasonable, right? Saul's been hunting David, kill him. David refuses. And so David then leaves, calls out to Abner, uh, Saul's, I think, general or military leader here, accusing him of not protecting Saul since David took his water and spear. So David pleads with Saul not to kill him. Saul, you know, repents, not really, um, lets David go. And we know it's short-lived and not trustworthy because of how chapter 27 opens. 
David basically says, I know that Saul's going to keep trying to kill me, which is true. And so uh, David leaves after that. So there's the, the second story. Now let's tie both these chapters together. Think with me, what's the main idea of chapter 25? Well, it's essentially this. Through Abigail, God led David not to save with his own hand, but to trust the Lord for salvation. So in other words, through Abigail, God brought David to trust him, to not save with his own hand, but to trust the Lord. Now, what's the main idea of chapter 26? David trusts the Lord to work salvation rather than bringing it about himself by killing Saul. So you see the connection between the two. Although David's been cautious to already not save himself in previous stories, you know, by killing Saul, he apparently needed to learn the lesson again in chapter 25. And it's Abigail's faith-filled words to him that convince him afresh of his need to trust the Lord. And so we then see in this story, David speaking in, in words that echo Abigail's. Abigail's influenced him. And David now sounds a lot like Abigail in this story. And so the lessons here are that God is sovereign. He'll fulfill his purposes for us so we can trust him. We don't need to take things into our own hands. Um, and as a sub-theme, he can use men and women like Abigail to, to lead us to trust um, in the Lord. So that's why we need one another. Okay, so those are the first two chapters uh, that we're looking at. Now let's look at the, the next two, and then we'll touch on this strange witch of Vendor uh, note as well. Um, okay, so briefly, chapter 27, actually really brief here, the moral failure of David. Strange story. David flees the Philistines to avoid Saul. He gets his own town, and he starts making these raids against Israel's enemies, uh, but he's keeping it a secret from the king in this area. So think with me, what are a few ways that this story draws attention to David's failure of character? Here's a few. David's fearful. You notice how that opening verse indicates that he's not trusting in the Lord in chapter 27 here. He said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Very strange. He seems to not be having the kind of confidence that he expresses elsewhere in Samuel and in the Psalms. It seems to be a contrast to the confidence that he's had. He's also excessively violent. So he's continuing the conquest in a sense. So th these enemies of Israel that he's defeating, those are ones that should have been defeated by Israel in the first place. So that's a good thing in one sense, but he's not doing it explicitly or strictly. He's also uh, killing women so they won't report back to Akish. So he doesn't seem to be doing this out of loyalty to God. He's excessively violent. He's also calculating here, which could seem clever, but the whole thing puts him in this crazy jam. If he fights, then he's against Israel. So, you know, Akish wants him to join his army. So if he fights with the Philistines against Israel, he's then an enemy of Israel. If he doesn't fight, then Akish is going to kill him. So in other words, he's got himself in a jam that only God can rescue him from. And so... David's just has this terrible problem standing against Israel. I mean, an amazing situation. Here is Israel's anointed king about to serve as an enemy of Israel. One point that I think is worth noting here. You have on your handout there, what does this, how does this chapter give us confidence in the historical credibility of 1 and 2 Samuel? Well, here's how. Robert Alter is a Jewish scholar 
of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and he doesn't actually take this whole text in 1 Samuel as historically credible. He's kind of a liberal scholar. But he does make this point. He says that the story of chapter 27 is a big problem for those who think that David is not really a historical figure. Because he said, if this was written, if 1 Samuel was written as a legend, they never would have written chapter 27. Right? This is national treachery. David has gone over to the Philistines, gaining the favor of the Philistine kings. He says, this is like Churchill going over to Berlin for a few years to curry the favor of the Kaiser. So here's the inference. The author of this story didn't want to leave out this information, even though it's uncomfortable to see Israel's king doing this, which gives us even further confidence in the historical reliability of this whole book. Okay, so the last chapter then, we have this moral decline of Saul. So there's a a plot line here as well. In brief, you have the setting. Saul's afraid of the Philistines. God's not answering him, so he's desperate, and he decides to seek out a medium. So he's violating God's law. This is a capital offense. He's violating his own previous reinforcement of that law because verse 3 says he already put these mediums and necromancers out of the land. So he was putting them out of the land, and now he's actually going to go get one. So the the conflict of the story and then the rising tension is that Saul seeks this medium to bring up Samuel, the prophet, from the dead. So Saul is promising this medium that he won't reinforce God's laws against divination. So he's really usurping God's place here. He even says he makes the promise by the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives, you know, no harm will come to you. So complete arrogance, playing the place of God. Notice verse 13 in chapter 28, just an interesting note here. It says, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The king. Saul is called Saul all through this chapter. And only there is he called just the king. Maybe not significant, but it may be a reminder of just how terrible that moment is. In other words, it's saying, The king of Israel, of all people, is secretly practicing divination. So the woman then brings up Samuel from the dead, leads to the climax. Uh, Samuel reminds Saul that God rejected him for his disobedience. You can read verse 16 with me. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become angry? So God's turned from Saul. Samuel's like, why are you even asking me? You already know this. God rejected you long ago. He's turned away from you. And now Samuel even adds that God's turned against him, not just away from him. So Saul's terrified, doesn't eat, then he does, and then he kind of leaves in this sad ending of the story. So let's think about how this chapter and the previous one fits together. The main idea of chapter 27, David is making friends with the Philistine leader, Achish, to protect his life from Saul. But he ends up tangled in a mess, standing as an enemy of Israel. Main idea of chapter 28. Saul climaxes in his spiritual uh, decline, uh, is basically a spiral into moral decline and hopelessness. So putting these two chapters side by side, here's what we see. David and Saul are both failures. Uh, David is not as bad as Saul, 
by any stretch, but he's still morally imperfect. And Saul is a moral failure. And so what's the point? Here's what I think the point is. And this is the overarching point of First and Second Samuel. It's for God's people to put their hope in God, not the king. And for them to long for the true and better king to come that David speaks about in the Psalms often. They're waiting for an eternal king. Their, their hope is in God, the true king, and they're waiting for one true king, human king to come to rule. We know that to be Jesus. So as we look at these chapters, we lose absolute confidence in Saul, of course, and we also don't have confidence in David. Our hope has to be in God. That seems to be the point. So to wrap up, let me just draw attention to a couple of themes in this last chapter. One is the mediums and the necromancers. What a strange story. So a couple of points about the background. Leviticus 19 and 20 have a number of statements about necromancers, mediums, spiritists. And here's a couple of the notes. One, they'd make Israel unclean. So they were supposed to be actually not just put out of the land, but put to death. So Saul, when he put them out of the land, he actually wasn't being fully obedient. They were to be put to death. It was a capital crime to be a medium or a necromancer. God also says that he would turn against that person and cut them off from Israel if they, they did that. So this is a little bit of the background. Big problem. Here's the question then. Is this kind of thing real or fake? A couple thoughts. One, sometimes things like this that we see in chapter 28 are fake. Sometimes there's people who use trickery. They're adept at taking small bits of information, making a big message out of it. Some people take advantage of someone's desperation to hear from a dead loved one. And so they'll charge a bunch of money to give some kind of hope to the person that their loved one is still alive and communicating. You know, they'll create these emotionally manipulative environments. So sometimes it's for sure fake. Sometimes it's real, though. Some people are probably accessing some kind of spiritual reality. However, I doubt that they're accessing what they claim to because they may be interacting with demons. So in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that lived in a culture that worshipped idols. They often held feasts in honor to, of an idol, and they ate the meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul said, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And he says, I don't want you to participate in demons. So they're just kind of offering it up to idols. And Paul says, those are demons. So I think it's very plausible that some people are tapping into spiritual reality, but it's actually demonic. All sorts of weird things can fall in this category, Ouija boards and all that kind of stuff. So here's the question, then. what's going on in chapter 28? Is this real or is this fake? And I, I think it's neither fake nor demonic. It actually looks straightforward. So it looks kind of like an exception to the rule. It looks like chapter 28 here shows us a very rare example of a dead person actually getting contact. It doesn't seem to be fake because this seems to actually be Samuel. And it's not a demon because it's Samuel, but this seems rare. The woman, it's interesting, is actually surprised to see Samuel, which could mean that she actually wasn't used to seeing the dead. She may have actually been a fake and been just as shocked as anyone that Samuel's actually coming up from the dead. She's like, I'm not used to this kind of thing, uh, perhaps. So it seems like it's not fake or demonic. It's actually Samuel. Perhaps he's, you know, not embodied, but he's, he's kind of taking bodily form in a sense, um, a spirit being seen in a visible way. 
So how common is this kind of thing? I think we, we should take from this a, a good caution. Today, it's often called channeling, right? Channeling spirits. There's this ache that many people feel in our culture as we shift post-Christian. People are often leaving Christianity, but they're not comfortable with nothing. They sense there has to be something else out there. So they stay spiritual and open or eclectic in their beliefs. But the fear is here, the danger is that that can open them up to a number of things, things that were like those necromancers and mediums of ancient times. I mentioned just this past Sunday about this uh, friend of mine who uh, was completely overtaken by demonic forces through New Age meditation practices. So as Christians, how do we think of it? Well, we should recognize there are spirits. The Bible calls them angels and demons. They're active and they're able to communicate with people. So we take it seriously, but we also know that Christ is more powerful. And so we don't mess with it. And um, last question, how does the gospel and the Christian worldview meet the needs of those who seek spiritualists? Why do people seek to hear from the dead? Well, they want to hear from a dead loved one. Well, we can know that for those in Christ, we will see those who are dead again, who are in Christ. We can know that Christ is with us and the spirit is with us and we'll see them again one day. The desire to know our future is okay, but we just need to trust the Lord. He's sovereign. He'll take care of us. We don't need to pursue these other avenues that he has put us off limits, especially if it's demonic. So there may be a lot of questions. I'm tempted to say any questions you have, but that would just be a tease because I won't be able to hear your answer. The last point is that Saul's spiral of sin, absolute tragedy. The Lord's turned away from Saul. He's been spiraling downward chapter after chapter after chapter, month after month after month, year after year after year. And now he's coming to the end of himself. Sin is relational. He's rejected God. He's not trusting the Lord. And sin has this momentum. And so at the very beginning, I think it's chapter 15, Samuel said to him, rebellion is as the sin of divination. Isn't that interesting? Early on, rebellion, Saul's rebellion, Samuel says, that's as the sin of divination. This is just as bad as divination. And what's so amazing then is at the end of Saul's road, he actually practices divination. So he commits the sin of divination. And so there's just this spiral that leads downhill. And so it's a caution to walk in the light, confess sin, repent quickly, keep short account of the Lord because sin can be like a snowball that's just packed, rolls down a hill and gathers more and more snow and gains momentum and takes us further than we ever planned on going. So final thought as we look at these four chapters, they really highlight in many ways our sin and our need of a savior. David's in a mess. Saul's facing God as an enemy and sin leads there. And so this shows us the need for a true king. Neither David nor Saul are the heroes. No culture, no ethnicity, no leader, no party platform. Nothing can give us the hope we need. Only Jesus can. He's better than David and Saul. He was without sin. He's the true king. So that's all I have for you. So thanks for letting me join you uh, in this way. And really grateful that you continue to read First and Second Samuel and study it so well. And um, just in light of these chapters too, I'm so grateful for so many of you that I know personally demonstrate the character of Abigail and your women of faith who help men and women around you and you're an encouragement to me. So thank you.